We're up to chapter 4, Mishnah 7. Very interesting Mishnah, very interesting and controversial teaching, and a fascinating author, Rabbi Tzadok. Rabbi Tzadok Omer, Rabbi Tzadok says, Al tifrosh min do not separate yourself from the community. And don't make yourself as an advocate who arranges pleas before a judge. And do not make the Torah a crown with which you glorify yourself. And not a spade with which to dig. And so Hillel would say, we had this earlier as a mission earlier in, in chapter 1 of Pertrabos, Someone who uses, someone who exploits, someone who benefits from the crown of Torah shall fade away. You have learned from, from this. Whoever seeks to benefit personally from the words of Torah, they remove their life from this world. I want to point out before we begin, in most texts of the Perkyavos, the first two clauses of not separating yourself from the community and not making yourself into a an advocate who is lobbying before the judge, uh, most texts don't have that, doesn't appear, but in our text that we do have, it, it does appear. Okay. Rabbi Tzadok is one of the most interesting personalities of the Mishnaic era. He appears at the period of the destruction of the Second Temple, and there's many interesting teachings about him, stories about him, and of course teachings that he himself taught us. The Talmud tells us that he was a famed ascetic. Says the Talmud, Rabbi Tzadok, for 40 years before the temple was destroyed, he would have continuous, ongoing, self-imposed fasting. Why? Because he was using this as a means of prayer, as a means of, of advocating God to not destroy the temple. He had a premonition that the temple was going to be destroyed. And he says, I'm going to do whatever I can to stop it. And for 40 years, he would fast. It's not so clear when he would obviously need to eat or else he'll die. But the Talmud gives us a description. And the Talmud tells us that he was so emaciated, he was so gaunt, that when, when he would eat something, when he would break his fast, you were able to see from outside of his body, you would have to see the food snaking into his stomach. He was so emaciated that it was evident from without. And Thomas says that he would, he would take figs and he would suck out the juices when he would break his fast. It was like the, the first, uh, the first cleanse. He was ahead of his time. But anyhow, a really interesting idea that for 40 years, four temples destroyed. So we have a tradition that temples destroyed either the year 68 or the year 70, different opinions around that time. So either the year of 28 or the year 30 of the Common Era, this great sage, Rabbi Tzadok, says, I am going to myself stop this catastrophe from happening. The temple is going to be destroyed. I'm going to stop it. And he was praying and fasting for 40 years. And of course, it was not successful. How did he know that the destruction of the temple was imminent. So maybe there's def- different answers to this question. But the Talmud tells us that for 40 years before the temple was destroyed, a lot of bad things or a lot of signs and indicators were present that it was going through its last hurrah. And the miracles and the presence of God 
that was always there was already fleeting. And he gives a list of things that would happen. Number one, on Yom Kippur, the high priest would draw lots. He would have two identical goats. One of them is going to be brought as a sacrifice for God. And one is going to be the scapegoat. It's going to be thrown off a cliff and it's going to be the recipient of all the sins of the Jewish people and they're all going to die with that scapegoat. Identical goats and he would choose lots and he would pick out lots at random, place one on this goat, place one on that goat, and that would determine which goat was destined for the altar and which one of them was going to be thrown off a cliff, the scapegoat. For years and decades, it was a sign that the Almighty is finding favor of the Jewish people when the right hand of the coin, the right hand of the priest, the more dominant hand, would have the lot for God. And that would show, that would indicate that God's happy with us. For the last 40 years before the temple was destroyed, never once did it happen. The, the name for God always came up on the left side, on the, on the less dominant, and that was already a sign, a harbinger of bad things to come. Moreover, when they would do this process, they would tie a crimson string in the temple, and one of them actually where they threw the animal off the cliff, and that would miraculously turn white. And that would be the sign of the transition of God, so to speak, harboring our sins and wanting to punish us as a result. And then there's the cleansing, the expiation, where all the sins are removed. That ceased happening 40 years before the temple destroyed. The westernmost candle of the menorah for years and decades and centuries was continuously lit. It was a miracle, ever-present miracle. That ceased 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple. The doors of the temple, the doors of the sanctuary, would be independently opening, and they couldn't close them. And that was, again, a sign that there's going to be foreign intruders coming in, and there's nothing we could do to stop them. The doors are not going to hold. And that was so bad, that was such a disheartening indicator that the great Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the leader of the Jews at the time, he started screaming at the doors. And he would say to them, I know there is a prophecy that you're going to be destroyed, but it's not your job. And he screamed at the doors with such intensity that the doors themselves closed. Moreover, elsewhere the Talmud tells us that the Sanhedrin, the collection of the greatest sages in the world that were permanently stationed in the temple grounds, in a place called the Marble Chamber, they abdicated. They voluntarily left the temple grounds and moved to a different neighborhood in Jerusalem initially and eventually moved to a town of Yavne, uh, far away from Jerusalem. Why would they do that? Why would they voluntarily leave the temple grounds? So Talmud tells us that this was a result of them being too busy. The law states that so long as the Sanhedrin is in the temple, is on temple grounds, capital punishment can be enforced all over the land. Whereas the second that the Sanhedrin abdicates, they leave the temple grounds, no court of the land can adjudicate capital punishment. Because the courts were so busy adjudicating capital punishment, therefore the Sanhedrin felt 
that their role had been adjusted and they did not want to be the court that's always busy with capital punishment and therefore they left. And by leaving, they handcuffed every other court that they could no longer do capital punishment. The mandate to do capital punishment was only as long as the was in the temple. Once they left, no one else could do capital punishment. But again, that was a sign that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, there is a trajectory, there's a change, there's a shift. Now things are heading in the wrong direction. Of course, the temple is destroyed, and it's destroyed after a prolonged siege of Jerusalem. This is the period that's known as the Great Revolt. The Jewish people mount a revolt, the Romans fight back, and they systematically take over the land and commit horrific atrocities throughout the land as they were wont to do. And the final showdown, of course, happens in Masada a couple of years later. But the, the most important edifice, the most important stronghold is, of course, Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. The city is engorged with Jews, but the city is besieged by the Romans, and that caused the tremendous suffering in the city walls. The Talmud tells us that there were actually storehouses of grain and wood. They had the provisions for 21 years. Jerusalem had a good water supply, good water source, and it had plenty of food. It could have withstood a 21-year-long siege. But there were factions amongst the Jewish people that wanted to fight the Romans. Even though, of course, that was suicidal, but they wanted to do it nonetheless. And therefore, they sabotaged the supplies of the city in an effort to force the Jews, the rest of the people's hands, to go fight the Romans. But instead of achieving that, they just achieved widespread hunger, widespread starvation, people dying in the streets, people trying to forage for food outside the city and being killed in horrific way, being crucified. At one point, they were crucifying between three to 500 Jewish people that they caught every single day. Just a miserable, miserable time in our history, one of the low points of Jewish history. At this time, Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai was the leader of the Jews in, in Jerusalem, and he was in favor of coming with some sort of an accommodation with the Romans, but he couldn't even go out to negotiate with them because the Biryonim, the whippersnappers, they were guarding the gates and wouldn't allow anyone to go out. The one exception to that was they would allow Jews to go bury their dead. The Romans would and the Biryonim would. They allowed the Jews to go bury their dead outside of the city. So we've told the story before in the past. Rabbi Yochum Zakri was very old. He lets out a rumor that he's very sick. And he lets out a rumor that he, that he died. And they put him in a coffin, but he's still alive in the coffin. And they smuggle him outside the city. And even at the entrance of the city, the Biryonim were guarding the city, the, the city walls, the city gates. They said, well, maybe he's still alive. Let's stitch some spears and just in case. And they said to him, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't disgrace the body of the great sage. Eventually he is smuggled out of the city. He goes and he meets Vespasian, who is the Roman general overseeing the siege. And they have this really interesting encounter. And Rokhazaka is so impressive that he grants him the three requests, the three genie requests. And he tells him, spare the city of Yavne and its sages. 
spare the family of Hillel, the family of Rabbi Gamliel, the family of the Nasi. And his final request is, send us a doctor to heal Rabbi Tzadok. Rabbi Tzadok, again, has been fasting for 40 years. He is falling apart. He's emaciated. Send a doctor to heal him. The Talmud goes on to say what the doctor did. The initial treatment was they took some water and they mixed it with a little bit of bran. You know, when you have someone who's been fasting and starving for so long, you just give him a big, lavish meal, they're going to die. So they would slowly try to enlarge his stomach, give him a little bit of water mixed with some bran. The next day, they added some flour and some bran in the water and in the little porridge that they gave him. And then finally, they gave him some water with some flour. And bit by bit, slowly by slowly, they nursed him back to health. Now, it's interesting. The Midrash does tell us that Rabbi Tzadok, and most likely in line with his teaching in this Mishnah, he refused to accept this medical treatment. He didn't want to have any treatment for free. He insisted on paying every single dollar of the treatment he got. Similar to this idea that he teaches us in this Mishnah, don't use your Torah as a way to benefit. Don't make it a crown to get honor with. Don't make it a spade to dig with. Don't benefit from your Torah. I'm a drying Torah styler, yes. And now I'm being given free medical treatment, yes. I don't want it. I'm going to pay every dollar, and he indeed did that. There's an interesting statement in the Midrash about Rabbi Tzadok. Rabbi Yochum Zaka, again, a great admirer of Rabbi Tzadok, he declared, if there were two people as great as Rabbi Tzadok, we only had one Rabbi Tzadok, but if there were two Rabbi Tzadoks, Jerusalem would not have been destroyed. This force, this saintly, ascetic sage, fasting and praying for 40 years to stop the temple from being destroyed, it wasn't quite enough. If there was two people doing that, that would have been sufficient. One more really dramatic story about Rabbi Tzadok before we go into the teaching. The Talmud book of Kedushin, page 40a, tells us a very, seemingly very bizarre teaching. Rabbi Tzadok was propositioned by a Roman noblewoman. And he responded to her, my heart is weak and I'm incapable of doing what you want me to do. Is there any food that you could give me to strengthen me? So again, he's being propositioned by this Roman noblewoman. He says he's very weak. He needs food. Now, we, we could imagine why he would need food and why he's weak. He's someone who's fasting. He's someone who's praying the whole day. And he's obviously very weak. He can't, he doesn't, he can't perform. So she responded to him, yes, there is some food that I have, but it's non-kosher meat. That's the only food that I've got. So he responds to her, well, what difference does it make? We're about to engage in this forbidden act. What difference does it make if I eat this forbidden food? So she takes the food and she places it in the oven. We're going to cook this food. And suddenly the great rabbi jumps in the oven himself. Now, why would he do that? She says to him, what are you doing? So he responded to her, whoever does this gets put in this, i.e. whoever is about to do the sin that we're talking about is going to be put in Gehenna, is going to be roasted in, in hell and purgatory. And therefore, I'm going to jump in the fire already right now. So she responded to him, had I known that this was such a serious thing in your eyes, 
I would not have caused you such anguish. Initially, I wanted to proposition you to begin with. That's the story Talmud tells us in the book of Kedushin, page 40a. What is going on over here? So I'll share with you one of the comments and how they explain what's going on. Because the, 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 there's a few problems. First of all, Rabbi Tzadok is purported to be a great sage. And the woman comes and wants to do a sin together. And he initially seems to acquiesce. And then she says, okay, you need some food, right? Well, let me give you some non-kosher food. And he says, okay, what difference does it make? And then only later on, it seems like he has a change of heart. What's happening? So one of the commentaries tells us a very powerful insight. This story is indicative of a winning strategy against the Yetzirah. Yetzirah comes with a fever pitch. There's a few ways to try to engage or try to counter that fever pitch. You could try to say, you know what? I'm going to come back at you with a full force. You could do that, and maybe you'll be successful at that. But you have to realize that the Yetzirah is very vulnerable. Yes, it seems to be all-powerful. Yes, it seems to come with tremendous energy. But there is a flaw, there is a hole, there is a gap, there is a weakness that could be exploited. And that is that the peak of its powers are right at the beginning. And right away it begins to dissipate. So if you could outlast it, if you could just delay the conflict, so we were, were told, of course, this, the central element of, of military strategy is you don't let the enemy determine the arena of, of conflict. You try to choose scenarios, situations in which your advantages are going to be present. Don't let them determine the arena of battle. Similarly over here, Yetzirah says, okay, let's do this sin. And you know what? It's very convincing. You have Yetzirah, the Almighty gives it to you, and its argument, its proposals are quite desirable. It's something you may lust after. Well, how do you encounter that? How do you fight back? Well, you have to make a choice, right? But don't make a choice when the enemy is so strong. Weaken the enemy. Let its power deflate. Let its force dissipate. And only once it's much more weak or much more manageable, then you say, okay, no problem. Let's, let's encounter it. So what he's doing over here, he's teaching us how to go about this. The Roman wo- wo- noble woman comes and says, okay, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's propose this sin together. And he says to her, sure, but I'm a little bit weak. I'm a little bit hungry. Is there any food to eat? Suddenly, after 40 years of fasting, he's suddenly hungry? No, of course not. This is a delay tactic. And she says, well, there is food, but it's not kosher. So he says, ah, I'll eat the non-kosher as well. Doesn't make a difference. Just whoever's about to do what we're doing is eats this food as well. Is he seriously considering to eat the non-kosher? No. He just recognizes this particular flaw in the enemy, which is the Eight Sahara, is that its power is steadily decreasing. So the longer you wait, the weaker the enemy gets and the easier the victory over that enemy is. So as she's cook- cooking the food, he takes a drastic measure. Now he has the force to recognize 
what the Talmud tells us, what the Jewish law states, that these kinds of adulterous encounters are something that you're better given up your life to not transgress, and therefore he jumps in the fire. A very powerful story, a very dramatic story, but I think a very worthwhile insight to take away from Rabbi Tzadok, the great sage and the author of our Mishnah. And in our Mishnah, he's telling us a very powerful idea. He's telling us that we can utilize Torah in forbidden ways. We can take the Torah and turn it into a crown that we get glory from. We can turn it into a shovel, a spade that we dig with. We can use it to advance our own worldly agenda. And that's a sin. And if you do that, you deserve to die. Because the Torah is divine. And using it for this purpose, exploiting it to advance your own, this world's interest, that's a sin. And that's an unconscionable sin. And the commentaries tell us that the fact that he uses two different descriptors. Number one, don't make a, a crown to get glory from. Don't make it a spade to dig with. That's referring to honor. The crown is honor. Don't use it to gain honor. And money. Don't use it to advance your finances. There is one exception, noteworthy. If someone's getting honor, but the honor is not accruing to them, it's accruing to the Torah, well, then it's different. That would be an exception. But don't use the Torah to advance your own honor and don't use it to try to get a material benefit from it. And he brings a a shocking story. Can someone use their Torah greatness to save their lives? So you would think, well, there's almost anything we could do to save our lives. So there's just a terrifying story that they, they bring, the commentaries bring, on this Mishnah from the Talmud, the book of Nadarim, the Talmud tells the following story. There was a farmer who had orchards that was suffering the entire year. Why? Because the orchard was open to the public and thieves would come into his orchard and steal all his fruits. And every day he comes to his orchards and he sees there's this fruit's missing. Oh, overnight, someone came, some thieves came and they stole. And as the season progresses, there's fewer and fewer fruits on his orchard. And of course, he is stewing. He is mad. He's angry. He's full of rage against these heathens, these thieves that are stealing his produce. He's stealing his fruits. And then harvest season arrives. And there is a law that states that after fruits have been harvested, if there's a few little fruits in the ground that drop, well, then they're ownerless. Meaning that anyone who wants to come to take him could come take them. So at this point, one of the great sages of the Talmudic era, of the Mishnahic era, Rabbi Tarfon, he happens to chance by this field. And it's after the harvest season. And there's a few little, small little fruits on the ground. And he says, aha, uh-huh, these are ownerless. That's the law. So he bends down to try to grab some of those fruits. But guess who's watching him? The owner's watching them. And they're like, I finally got those thieves. And he runs over to Rabbi Tarfon and starts beating him up. And puts him in a bag, a sackcloth, and starts dragging him down to the river. 
He's like, this thief, I'm going to put him down finally. So he's grabbing him to the river and he doesn't realize that he, not only does he have someone who's completely innocent, because this is not the same thief that's been stealing from me the whole season, he has one of the great sages of the world trapped in his bag. And Rabbi Tarfon, as he's stuck there in the bag, realizing that his fate's about to be sealed, he starts screaming out and he says, Woe to Tarfon, you're going to be killed. And this landowner hears it. He's like, oh my goodness, what did I just do? I just grabbed the great Rabbi Tarfon and put him in my bag. He drops the bag and hightails out of there. And the postscript of the story is every day for the rest of his life, he would regret the story. His life was in danger, yes. But what did he use to save himself? He used his own Torah. He invoked his name, the great Tarphone. He's going to be killed. What he should have done is he should have said, I'll pay you for it. He should have said, I'll give you tons of gold and silver. He shouldn't have invoked his Torah greatness as a means of saving his life. And the Talmud goes on to say, it's possible that as a result of this story, he may have lost his world to come. That's how severe this story goes. And obviously, this seems to dovetail very nicely with this teaching that you cannot use your Torah for any personal benefit. Now, if Rabbi Tarfon did not have any money, then he would clearly be allowed to save his life using his Torah greatness. But because he had an alternative, and instead of using money, he used his Torah greatness, he was mourning yet. He was trying to repent, trying to atone for sin for the rest of his life. I had an interesting dilemma. Once when I was coming to the Sunday class... I was stopped by a cop. I was speeding. And I said to him, I said, listen, I'm going to teach a Bible class. I'm a little bit late. Could you let me off the hook? And he said, okay, sure. So my question was, did I make a mistake? Because am I invoking the Bible class and the fact that I'm coming to teach the Torah class, is that a fair use to get off the ticket? Maybe I violated this law. But I didn't say to him, listen, I'm a great Torah scholar. I said to him, I'm going to teach a Torah class. And you know what? If you write up the fine, you write up the ticket, it's going to delay the class and everyone's going to be waiting. So I feel like I'm still maybe okay. Maybe. I don't know. So this is a really interesting idea. And, and this is the epicenter of one of the, the most ferocious debates amongst the commentators. This particular question. To what degree... Should Torah scholars be compensated for studying Torah? Some of the commentaries are going to say that the answer is nothing. A Torah scholar should not be paid nothing. Because after all, don't pay someone for their Torah. Don't make the Torah a spade to dig with. Others say that no, there are some workarounds. That's not what the Mishnah actually means. There's benefits for the community that the Torah scholar conveys, and therefore it's not only okay, but it's mandatory to support the Torah scholars. This is why it's such a controversial and fascinating Mishnah, because each one of these sides is going to present very long and very persuasive essays to prove their point. But I want to discuss the, the, the idea on a more high, on a higher level. What's this idea? that if someone uses the Torah for their own benefit, 
that's going to condemn them either to die or they should die or they should lose the world to come. What's this idea that it's so bad to use the Torah for your own personal benefit? So the Maharal, one of the great commentators, of course, he explains this in, I think, a very powerful, powerful way. We know that the human is a confluence. It's an amalgam of opposites. We have the holy soul and we have the very unholy body. Those two are married together. They're forced together even though they're very, they're, they're antithetical to each other. They're opposites. We, of course, can connect to Torah and we can connect to God. By doing that, we're connecting with our soul. We're living more as a soul and connecting to God because our soul is from the spiritual planes and it can have some sort of touch point. It can have an interface with the spiritual world. However, our body, the other unholy part of our amalgam, of our cocktail, if you will, that cannot have any interface with God or with the divine. And I give some examples. We know there's a verse in scripture, man cannot see God and live. Why? Because so long as man has a body, that is a clash with the divine. And therefore, there's no way for that to exist. It's going to overpower the spiritual experience. It's going to overpower the physical experience and it's going to just burn it out. Similarly, he brings a verse in, in the book of Judges that talks about uh, Samson's parents when they meet the angel. They're terrified they're going to die because in the physical world, when there is uh, a clash with the spiritual world, the physical world is going to be just burned to pieces. Similarly, over here, when you have Torah, Torah, of course, comes from the spiritual world. Torah is the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God. And yes, we can connect to Torah, but really we're connected to Torah with our soul, with our spiritual halves. What happens when I try to merge the Torah with the mundane? I say, hey, I'm a great Torah scholar. Give me a job. I'm a great Torah scholar. Give me a raise. I'm a great Torah scholar. Pay me. Give me a stipend. I'm a great Torah scholar. Accept my kid to, to college. Whatever it is, I'm trying to benefit from the Torah in the mundane world. In effect, I am creating this clash and it's going to create this explosion that's going to kill me. It's almost like, uh, you know, you can't, uh, you don't shave in the shower or don't take a uh, toaster and put it right next to the bathtub. Why? Because when those two meet, they're not meant to meet. And when they meet, there's going to be an explosion and you're going to die. Similarly, the Torah is from a different realm. You bring it to this mundane world, it's going to be an explosion and you're going to die. Now, I want to mitigate this point a little bit. It's very important to stress Someone cannot benefit from the Torah. But suppose you have a situation where they're benefiting, not from the Torah, but the Torah scholar is benefiting, but not from the Torah itself. So the example that Benioner gives is that when someone sees someone that they like, they see a celebrity, not a Torah scholar, just an average, a regular person, but who's a celebrity, they want to give them honor. And they want to give the Torah scholar the same honor. That's okay. 
Because these are people who are not appreciative of the Torah. They just see someone who's a special person. And therefore, they don't acknowledge the Torah by evidence of the fact that they're acknowledging the, the, the celebrity. The celebrity has no Torah. They just see the Jewish celebrity and they want to appreciate the celebrity of that person, but not the Torah. They don't have an appreciation of Torah. Because only when someone has an appreciation of Torah and therefore they want to benefit the person who is the bearer, the, the holder, the receptacle of Torah, only then is, a, is it a problem. Where if someone just sees someone who is an honorable person and wants their crew, give honor to the honorable person, they would give honor to the other person who is honorable, but for very different reasons, well then it's okay for the Torah style to receive this benefit. Another point to maybe attenuate this idea, the Ruach Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Velazhner points out that it's using terminology of doing something. Don't make the Torah a crown. Don't take it as a shovel to dig with. It's in the field of action. What that indicates is that when someone initially begins studying Torah, they're going to feel very good about themselves. And that's quite natural. After all, you're studying the Imani's Torah. How can you feel anything but fantastic about yourself? And you may feel that you deserve some honor as a result, and that's perfectly normal. Having the feeling of deserving honor, that's okay, that's natural, that's expected. Don't make the crown. Don't dig the hole. Don't actualize that feeling. As you get deeper and deeper into your Torah study, you're going to mature to recognize that I don't want to use the Torah. I don't even want to use the Torah for my own personal terra firma advancement. It's a silly way to use it. It's, it's a silly to cash in on the Almighty's Torah to get, uh, you know, to get some sort of earthly benefit. And therefore, what, he, what, what, what it's indicating here is that, yes, when someone starts th- studying Torah, it's quite natural for them to have the feeling that they should get some sort of kickback as a result. But as they mature, they're going to realize that, no, there's much bigger fish to fry. There's much bigger things about it. Don't actualize that desire by making it into a crown or by making it into a spade, a shovel to dig with. Now, in this particular Mishnah, there is a very famous, very long, and very, very controversial comment by the Rambam. The Rambam wrote a commentary in Mishnah, and in every Mishnah, almost every Mishnah, there is a comment of the Rambam, and on this Mishnah, he writes not a comment, it's an essay, maybe it's an essay and a half. And he starts off his comment by saying that I know what I'm going to say is going to be unpopular. I know it. And I know that people before me and people around me and people after me are going to disagree with me. But I'm going to do it nonetheless because I find that there's something that's corrupt that's happening and it has to be stopped and there's no other way to interpret this Mishnah and therefore the fact that people are accepting money for their Torah, it's wrong. It's against the Mishnah and I'm going to write about it to make that abundantly clear. And he begins by talking about the subject in general by noting that in the times of the Talmud, 
Of course, the Rambam comes about a thousand years after the times of the Mishnah and the Talmud. In the times of the Talmud, the Talmud says the Rambam, there were sages that were very, very, very poor. And there were other sages that were very, very, very wealthy. And if it was appropriate for the community to provide a stipend, to provide funding for the great Torah sages, you wouldn't have that income inequality. You wouldn't have a world in which there is such disparate financial statuses of the sages because if it's appropriate for us to give money to the sages, well then they would have done it. And it's evidence of the fact that they didn't give Torah sages money that it was inappropriate. And he begins with the story of Hillel, Hillel the Elder. We know that he was a wood chopper. That is actually a field with a lot of upward mobility. And there was the famous episode where he was studying by Shammai and Avtalion, and he didn't have the small money to be able to pay to enter the House of Scholarship. He had to climb onto the roof and listen into the lecture from the skylight, and he almost died as a result of this story. And we see that he's a great sage, and notwithstanding his greatness in Torah, he was destitute. He was so poor. Didn't even have the few nickels that are costed to get into the lecture house. And if it was appropriate for him to benefit from his Torah, why would he be a woodchopper? Shouldn't he be getting a stipend from the community? It must be, says the Rambam, that it's inappropriate for someone to benefit from the Torah study, even if they're a great giant sage as great as Hillel, who became one of the leaders of the Jewish people. And then he reads the story of Rabbi Ben Dosa. Rabbi Ben Dosa was also a giant Torah sage, but was destitute and would only have a small amount of caribs that would sustain them for the whole week. Then he reads the story of Karna. Karna was a judge, and he was a water drawer. He would go draw water from the well. Again, not a... Uh, not a occupation that has a lot of income. And when he was when he was hired to be a judge, he said to his to the litigants, he said to them, You have to pay me for my services. But just pay me the equivalent of what I would have made drawing water from the well for the duration of the time of the of the court case. Either hire someone to take my job to lift the water out of the well for me or pay me the equivalent of what it, what it would have costed me. Again, we see that there was a resistance or there was even a prohibition against accepting money for Torah services and for Torah sages. And the Rambam explains why. What's the problem with it? Well, if people start accepting money for Torah, the Torah is degraded as a discipline amongst other disciplines. Well, we have the mathematician, we have the scientist, we have the researcher, we have the scholar in some other worldly field. Oh, we also have the Torah sage. There's the Egyptologist, there's someone who's studying Latin, there's someone who's studying ancient Greek, you have someone who's the the, the archaeologist, and they're all getting grants from the government. Well, let's give a grant from the government to the Torah sage as well. By doing that, we create a certain parity between Torah and other disciplines, and that, of course, is sacrilege. 
And finally, he ends off his piece by talking about that there are ways for someone to benefit. They could, and this is appropriate, the, the Torah Stiller could give his money to an investor, and the investor could invest for them. That would be okay. In fact, that would be even preferable. And he goes on to say how the, the Torah Stiller's money that takes precedence. So if there's good product available, the Torah style should be able to get first dibs. He should be able, to be able to sell it first as well. The Torah style is exempt from certain taxes. These are all okay. But the idea of receiving a stipend, that is not okay. Now, I want to, I want to stress that this is not referred to someone who's actually teaching Torah. If you have, let's say, someone who is teaching children in, in a school, no one's arguing that they shouldn't get paid. And that isn't part of the discussion. But the idea of having someone who's studying Torah exclusively, they're upholding the city with their Torah study. For them to be paid just to study Torah is us accruing honor to the Torah scholar because of their Torah. It's someone who's give, we're giving the Torah scholar the spade to dig with, and that is a violation of this principle. So are we all making mistakes? I am the proud alumnus of a yeshiva in Israel that has roughly 5,000 scholars who receive a monthly stipend for studying Torah. These aren't teachers. These aren't people providing any service to the community. They go to study in the morning, they study the whole day, and then at the end of the month, they receive a check, a stipend. Now, granted, the stipend is not very large, but it's a stipend nonetheless. And there's 5,000 of them in one yeshiva in Israel, and there's many, many tens of thousands of them throughout the world. Is there something wrong with this? According to the Rambam, yes. The Rambam is of the opinion that accepting money for Torah study when it's not connected with any sort of service, or you're not teaching, or you're not teaching children, you're not teaching members of the community, you're just studying Torah, that's a problem, says the Rambam. And the problem is that he is the only opinion that takes a very strong stand on this. And in fact, all of his contemporaries, and even the sages that came after the Rambam, normally there's a certain hierarchy, that you don't argue with the sages that preceded you. There's a certain idea of the, the idea of precedent. You're not going to argue in the Rambam. But the Kesef Mishnah, who is it's authored by the Bet Yosef, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo, he launches a very, very long and very, very detailed rebuttal of this Rambam. He says the Rambam made a mistake. And actually, not only is it okay to accept money for Torah study, it's actually mandatory. And he goes line by line arguing the Rambam, and he says, when Hillel was a destitute woodchopper, who was wallowing in poverty, that was before everyone knew who he was. He was some random person who came to study. No one recognized that he was the great Torah sage. Once he was recognized as a great Torah sage, he became the Nazi, he became the, the titular head of the Jewish people. Do you think he was still woodchopping at that time? Of course not. He'd received a stipend from the community. And they go bit by bit, every line uh, disagreeing with the Rambam. And he ends off his piece 
And he says, because this is a questionable halachic matter, there seems to be evidence on both sides of the matter, our law follows the custom. And the custom is, amongst all the sages of Israel, before the times of the Rambam, and after the times of the Rambam, that was the custom that they would accept a stipend from the community. And if the law is indeed like the Rambam, clearly there is a precedent for violating this law. And this is based upon the idea of there's a verse in Psalms that says, sometimes it's a time of action. It's a time of action because otherwise the Torah will be forgotten. Rabbi Judah the Prince, he violates the law that says you may not write down, you may not codify oral Torah. How does he violate the law? The answer is if he didn't violate the law, the law will be forgotten. When there is a risk of the Torah being wholesale forgotten, then it's appropriate to violate only one law to save the rest of Torah. Similarly, maybe the law is like the Rambam. But if we followed his ruling, Torah would have been, God forbid, forgotten from the Jewish people, and therefore it's okay to swallow this bitter pill, pay those 5,000 students their stipend, but at least Torah will be perpetuated. And yes, Maybe the Rambam is right, but so it doesn't even matter. Even if he is right, this is a this is a case where we would be allowed to violate that law in order to allow Torah to flourish. So that's that. A very interesting personality, the person of Rabbi Tzadok, a great sage from the critical era of our history. He is the one who is putting it all on the line to save the Jewish people. He himself does not want to benefit at all from anyone. He doesn't even accept the medical treatment that's provided to him. He has to pay, insists on paying it. And he's teaching us this idea how when we have Torah, we cannot manipulate it. We cannot exploit it for our own personal advancement, for our own personal benefit. We may only use the Torah for the Torah's sake. And then we have a very interesting and very contemporary debate as to whether or not this idea applies or how exactly it would apply to modern to modern thought. Certainly according to the Rambam, it's a zero tolerance policy. You cannot use your Torah in any way to advance your personal agenda. According to others, according to the more mainstream opinion, it would be okay, provided of course if someone's independently wealthy, then they shouldn't collect the checks you know, destined to keep the Torah scholars alive. If they're able to finance their Torah study without resorting to getting paid for it, then of course they should do that. But in a general, general case, if someone is studying Torah, it's not only okay, it's appropriate for the community to help provide them a certain stipend because after all, these are the cherished choicest of our nation and they're doing the Torah study that we really should be doing. They're doing it for us and we want to help support them. Of course, if someone is doing something which is of material benefit for the community, if someone's like a rabbi in a shul, of course the rabbi should get paid. It's not a question. If someone's teaching, of course they should get paid for their services. But if someone just studied Torah, the Torah is their craft, is the words of the Talmud. Someone like that, everyone agrees that they're given certain exemptions. The Ram tells us that they're exempt from certain poll taxes, they're exempt from conscription in the army, they're exempt 
from various other taxes that were present. It's preferable if, if they're in the business, in the marketplace, they should be given priority. Their goods should be presented first. They should be given first dibs at buying goods. But as to whether or not they should be given a benefit from their Torah study, it's a matter of dispute. The Ram says, absolutely not. Categorical opposition, even though he knows that everyone disagrees with him. But the accepted opinion is that it's actually very laudatory. It's very, it's, it's, it's very praiseworthy if someone's able to support the Torah sages in their studies.